0: to hear my conversation with our equity CIO, Leslie Marks. We talk all about the Bank of Canada's recent rate hike of 75 basis points, the impact that they might have on the Canadian housing market, what happened at Jackson Hole, and we turn our attention to Europe in the context of the energy crisis. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKinsey Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnurr and I'm delighted to be back with our CIO of Equities, Leslie Marks. Leslie, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Matt. Good to be here.
0: It's a very timely uh, podcast. Uh, We're recording on uh, September 7th. The Bank of Canada this morning has come out and raised interest rates by 75 basis points. I think that was largely what the markets had uh, priced in. Uh, What's your take on the 75 basis point hike?
1: Yeah, so I think you summed it up uh, very well there with your opening remarks. It is a big day for the Bank of Canada. The bank hiked its target overnight rate uh, 75 basis points today, which was Largely as expected. So we're at three and a quarter percent. And this is the fastest pace of tightening for the Bank of Canada since the mid 90s, with 300 basis points for this year. And I think this is probably one of the highest, if not the highest, policy rate among major economies. Uh, Now it's a bit of an epidemic in uh, central bank tightening. We had um, the Reserve Bank of Australia hiking by 50 basis points yesterday. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to hear from the ECB, who people are also expecting to see a 75 basis point hike. Um, I'd say largely, um, even though the, the hike was as expected, um, most people would view their commentary as pretty hawkish. And certainly in the sense of maintaining the hawkish stance that they've had for most of this year. They indicated that policy rates will need to rise further. And today markets are pricing in another 50 basis point hike in October. Um, They also confirmed their continuation of their quantitative tightening policy. So the Bank of Canada is is committed and and they're committed to bringing inflation down. Um, They did acknowledge the trends Um, That the trends of inflation are coming down, but the core uh, number that is their focus, uh, core inflation measure actually ticked up in July, which they noted. So they still feel like there is uh, work to do, despite the fact that higher interest rates could have far reaching impact on the Canadian economy.
0: Uh, for sure. And and just to uh, leverage your last point there, um, far-reaching impacts, I think the first thing that comes to mind with a lot of Canadians is just the impact on the housing market. Uh, clearly, um, Canada has a, has had a very healthy and robust uh, price increase, increases for many decades uh, in the housing market. Um, what's the impact or, or probable impact on the housing market? We've already seen it come down a little bit. Does that continue or what are you expecting under that?
1: Well, I think that the first order of impact we've seen is is probably fairly obvious to to most people, which is that uh, prices have fallen from their peak in March, and depending on where you are across the country, probably in the range of around 10 to 20 percent. In the GTA where I live, um, they're down about 16 percent from the March peak, and in addition to prices being down, volumes have declined uh, substantially as well. Now. Part of that could be because we've had such a strong market both in volume and price over the last two and a half years during COVID. So it's not completely surprising that you would see um, a pullback from demand, which was probably pulled forward over the last uh, couple of years. I think the fall selling season will be really important to watch because some people will say, well, over the summer, I'm going to defer listing my house if I don't absolutely have to sell. And we'll typically wait until the fall, um, till there's sort of more action and, and, and activity. So if prices continue to fall and volumes don't pick up, then uh, I think we'll get more concerned about housing. We also have to digest the Bank of Canada's news today because that will come through on uh, mortgage rates starting uh, today. And um, the other thing that's important to mention is is context. And And although prices... And and, and that's a big sort of headline shock number when you see a 16% decline from the March peak. In most cases, year over year, house prices are still flat. Um, So for the Canadian economy, housing is extremely important for a couple of reasons. One, because people there are people who use their equity in their home as a bit of a bank account and to help with cash flow. So your ability to use that bank account decreases if the value of your home decreases. Right. And secondly, there's a very big uh, consumer confidence aspect when your th- the thing that is your largest asset on your personal balance sheet is rising, you're feeling more optimistic about spending money on other big ticket purchases, doing renovations, etc. So when that starts to turn in, in the opposite direction, it has an impact on consumer confidence for Canadians.
0: Right. Um, I, I'd be interested in your view on uh, banks as well. Um, clearly, most of the Canadians have mortgages on on the place. This is where the impact comes because of the interest rates going on, uh, up. Are you expecting uh, banks to be faced with uh, a lot of delinquencies potentially in the, the near term? Or, or do you see any material impact on bank earnings?
1: So I, th- I think for the banks, uh, there's been a lot of sort of ink spilled on the risk on Canadian banks to do with the Canadian housing market. Um, Canadian banks are generally in very good shape when it comes to Canadian housing given their conservative underwriting policies and loan-to-value, etc., and the high percentage of people that have uh, fixed-rate mortgages over variable-rate mortgages. Now, of course, that trend has been increasing over time, making it a little more risky than it has been historically, but it's right. still a smaller percentage as variable versus fixed. Uh, we did see the banks in their most recent uh, reporting season, that which would be their Q3, um, increase their provisions for credit losses, which I think was largely as expected. And oftentimes what happens, and we saw this in the financial crisis, or sorry, in, in the COVID um, yes. crisis, um, was that you saw uh, banks increase their provisions for credit losses, and then they were able to bring those back into their earnings in, in subsequent quarters, because our banks are generally uh, quite conservative on underwriting. Um, what we did see in, in bank reporting season, now the banks are still because of the structure of the Canadian banking sector um, are still doing well and and earning high returns. Um, But we did see some weakness in their capital markets businesses, as well as wealth management because of the impact on capital markets uh, year to date. Um, It's very challenging when you see markets start to correct at, well, you know, the banks have, have an October year end, but when they start to correct starting in January, that really impacts for the majority of the year when it comes to assets in in the wealth management segment. So um, that's a pretty significant headwind. And capital markets over the summer do tend to be quite quiet. So add you know a seasonally quiet period with um, declining capital markets. I think the banks would be hoping for a, a better fall, and there's probably a good backlog of new issue business uh, to come if markets are. Favorable or, if in the, or if the environment is favorable, but the banks are struggling. This is 21% of the S&P TSX. Right. Um, it's a pretty significant headwind for uh, investors in Canadian equities. Um, no question about that.
0: And I think uh, during our last podcast, you had recently uh, taken uh, your overall asset allocation stance from an overweight uh, Canadian equity back to benchmark. Is that still where you remain? And and is it partly because of the concerns on banks and and other uh, parts of the economy?
1: Yeah, so when we moved our relative view on Canadian equities, I think it's important to um, recognize the the other side to that, which is uh, we were at the time feeling relatively more positive about Canadian equities compared with U.S. equities. So we had an overweight to Canada and an underweight to the U.S. Uh, recently, as you mentioned, our Global Investment Committee moved to remove that favorable view towards Canada away from the U.S. to neutralize between Canada and the U.S. Um, the reason for that was primarily because of um, the headwinds uh, partly related to the Canadian banking sector, but mostly because of a change in view on the global economy and the fact that global GDP growth would be, our expectation was that it was going to slow for a number of reasons, and that would be a significant headwind for the commodity complex in in Canada. The the Canadian economy is very leveraged to global growth, and so that is a significant factor when you think about the outlook for Canada. We're not negative on Canada, and I want to be clear on that, because Canadian stocks represent still very attractive value. Um, There's still very strong uh, price momentum in the energy complex. Um, When you look at the expectation for earnings in Canada, it's quite strong this year, and our market only trades at 12 times earnings. Now, It should not trade at the same multiple as um, the S&P, but um, it's probably too big of a discount to to that market. But overall, uh, we felt that the risk reward was more balanced between Canadian and U.S. equities, and that hasn't changed since then.
0: Uh, it makes a lot of sense, and I guess one of the places where uh, we see alignment between Canada and the U.S. and maybe goes into some concerns on uh, global growth as well is just the uh, call it the consensus among central bankers uh, and their hawkish- hawkishness. You talked about uh, Bank of Australia, uh, ECB. I'd love your comments on Jackson Hole. Uh, very hawkish language coming out of Jackson Hole uh, from Powell and and company. Uh, what did you make of that? Was that surprising at all? And and uh, yeah, and ha- how do you think about that in the context?
1: of uh, global growth? Well, Matt, uh, you know, we as a group in our global investment committee were not um, as supportive of the view that there was a Fed pivot uh, earlier in the summer that many uh, investors certainly subscribe to, which is really what stimulated the rally that or the strong rally that we saw over the summer. So we were a bit confused right. by market behavior even before uh, Jackson Hole what Jackson Hole did was really confirm what we already believed, which was that the Fed was not pivoting on policy. And there's, there's one statement in the seven-minute speech that, that I think sort of bears emphasizing, which was from Jerome Powell. And he said, the historical record cautions strongly against prematurely loosening policy. Hmm. So the historical record cautions Strongly against prematurely loosening policy. So what he was basically saying is, if you think that we are guiding towards some pivot in the near term, you are wrong. Right. <laughs> and I, I think that the market really latched onto a few statements from that speech, but that one in particular. And what he's really saying is, he doesn't want to make the same policy error um, as. One of his predecessors, Fed Chair Arthur Burns, did in the '70s, which right. was really characterized as a stop and start um, policy, which then led to the Volcker era of sky high interest rates to to really you know get rid of or stamp out in inflation. And to to just reiterate the point, he said, "We must keep at it until the job is done." And other um, Fed governors are also reiterating that, and you're hearing that. Um, sort of across the board um, from the governor. So, um, you know, the the, the job that needs to be done here is to tame inflation. And when we look at some leading economic indicators, it's clear that um, the global economy, but also the U.S. economy, is starting to slow. And the supply side, which is not controlled by the Fed, is actually starting to ease up. I mean, you could just recognize it the average person, anecdotally, um, would be experiencing less supply chain constraints, right. um, and and so, you know that that side of the ledger is is kind of starting to to take care of itself. But the demand side, um, which is really what the Fed can focus on with policy, is actually not yet um, reflecting what we think is the reality, which is in an economic slowdown. And the, the area that is probably of greatest focus um, for many is the labor market. And we're seeing you know, small incremental indications that the labor market is starting to loosen up, but we're still seeing um, low productivity Um, low unemployment, even though unemployment ticked up, but that was because of increased employment participation. So there are some positive signs, but they're they're marginal. And so for the average person um, on the demand side, we're not seeing a change in behavior and we haven't seen a material change in the labor market. And these are the things that ultimately will impact inflation. And, And so, yes, we would agree that inflation has probably peaked from here, but the expectation that it will come down into the 2% range or the target range for um, both uh, the Federal Reserve and the Bank of Canada in the short term, I think is not realistic. It's it's going to take longer than mm-hmm. most people would, would like to see. And so that means that um, the Fed, as Chairman Powell said, um, must keep at it until the job is done. And they're very cautious about taking their foot off that break um, too soon
0: right so how, how how what's your perspective on how they're viewing you know when they could possibly start easing on the break I guess like we've seen supersized sized rate heights out of both uh, the Fed and Bank of Canada um, you know the, one of the things that strikes me about monetary policy it tends to act with a leg uh, so pr- fairly hard to know exactly how hard to, to hit that break. Is your expectation that uh, we'll see we'll continue to see sort of these supersized rate hikes, or will we get into more of a 25 basis point or take a month off and do it later? What, what do you think the path is, I guess?
1: I think the path from here is probably more moderate in the size of rate hikes. Having said that, the only reason I think that is because um, both uh, or all central banks generally communicated that they will be data dependent in mm-hmm. their decision-making. And so it's going to be very important to see um, data that supports a decrease in the pace of increasing interest rates, if you will. So that means things like labor, that means inflation uh, right. data. So we just saw um, the July numbers. We the Next we'll get August and you know, those will be indications of what the next move by central bankers will be. But we're pretty confident that we've seen the peak. It's just a matter of pace. I think also um, both the Bank of Canada and the Federal Reserve acknowledge that they're going to be tightening from a mon- monetary policy perspective in the face of an economic slowdown. Right. And they are willing to, and, and I think Powell actually use the word pain, (laughs) that something to the effect of that there is going to be some pain. So Mm -hmm. they are willing to go beyond the neutral rate in order to get price stability or achieve price stability. So I think that, yes, we're going to move into a more moderate pace, but the idea that they will stop or move to rate cuts because there were people who believed that we would start to see rate cuts by the fourth quarter. And that's obviously not going to happen. I think best case scenario, middle of 2023 for rate cuts based on what we see today. Of course, we're also data dependent. We're watching the data as well.
0: Great. Um, just, uh, to, uh, conclude the conversation, I'd like to turn over to Europe. Uh, we've we've certainly seen a uh, fairly massive uh, energy shock called in, in Europe. Uh, Nord Stream 1 has recently been uh, come back offline for maintenance, quote unquote, um, and, uh, and lots of concerns uh, at the European uh, energy uh, situation in general. What are your thoughts there?
1: Well, I think that actually Europe is one of the most important things for us to, to watch. And I think in Europe, you mentioned um, the issue with natural gas. And if you look at the benchmark price of wholesale natural gas in Europe, we are definitely in a full-blown energy crisis. There is no Mm. doubt Um, in anyone's mind. Wholesale prices are up 20-fold from a year ago. And and obviously, this has a big impact on inflation. And it really forces the hand of the ECB, which we're going to hear from tomorrow tomorrow. Right. And, and I talked about the Fed and the Bank of Canada hiking rates in the face of a slowdown, which isn't the norm, as, as you can appreciate. Well, imagine if you're the ECB and the consensus view is that they're going to hike by 75 basis points in the face of um, what is highly likely to be um, the eye of the storm of a, a recession in Europe. And... Um, And and imagine having to make a policy decision um, on the basis of inflation when the future pricing of uh, wholesale natural gas is really dependent on geopolitical outcomes, as you mentioned. Um, And I think you said, quote, unquote, the maintenance shutdown of Nord Stream 1. Um, it's, It's hard to predict what, you know, when the pipeline will come back on. Um, yeah, on Monday, um, when the pipeline uh, maintenance was extended, prices jumped 30%. So mm-hmm. here you have central bankers trying to make policy decisions, which um, are generally based in some geopolitical outcome, which really a future prediction is, I guess, at, at best. So sure. you have a, a population that's fearful of gas rations in, in the winter months, um, you know, Germany. Uh, being significantly impacted. It's a very highly energy-intensive industrial nation, Um, so huge impact on the economic outlook for the region. And uh, later this week, we'll also hear uh, from um, European leaders from their energy summit, which will likely come out with some sort of widespread reform um, for the electricity market if all the members can agree on conditions and that will be helpful to, to the average um, citizen. If you can imagine uh, for an individual whose monthly heating costs may be, you know, pick a number depending on the size of your house or the energy efficiency of your house, but call it a couple hundred uh, euros, the, the price this year could, could be going up for that individual on a monthly basis um, to a thousand to, to twelve hundred euros. So, this is a major um, issue. In Europe, and what we're starting to see as a result is some unrest. As a result, and right. uh, last week we saw um, there was a major protest in Prague. Seventy thousand demonstrators, they estimated, that were demanding the government end their sanctions against Russia over the war on U- in Ukraine. And so, this kind of unrest is um, frightening for governments, for policymakers. Um, because they have a very unified view today on supporting Ukraine, but now um, large parts of the population aren't sharing that same view. And so it's getting to be a little bit um, almost chaotic in the sense of how to manage uh, pricing that is you know, rising at a very fast pace, but also extremely volatile. And um, as I mentioned, uh, you've got monetary policy, which is very... Uh, tight right now in in the region to try and control inflation. So the European story is an important one to watch. Um, also has a big impact on currency. And I think as as you know, North Americans, we can't sit here uh, comfortably in our chairs and say, well, that's what's happening over there. Um, as we've seen, the euro is weakened and the dollar is strengthened. Right. Um, U.S. dollar strength has you know significant impact even for the U.S. economy when you look at the S and P 500. Um, the majority of companies in that index are exporters. Uh, strong dollar is not good for uh, right. those businesses from the top line perspective. So, um, you know, a lot of this, um, as I mentioned, chaotic um, or these chaotic outcomes in, in Europe will find their way um, over the pond to over here in, into North America.
0: Uh, certainly seems like a very uh, delicate um, situation in Europe with ECB rising uh, potentially 75 basis points in the wake of that uh, energy crisis and the political unrest that you, that you went through. Um, so lots, uh, lots to pay attention to uh, going forward on that. So, Leslie, thank you very much for walking us through uh, those, those different regions. Uh, I, I can't wait to have you back to act as a bit of a Sherpa to these uh, quite choppy waters that we find ourselves in. So thanks again, Leslie.